I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. My guest today is Dr. Chris Churchill, a professor of astronomy at NMSU, whose work focuses on the evolution of galaxies using chemical line spectra from the Hubble Space Telescope, along with state-of-the-art cosmological simulation software. He's also taught futuristic, and I would imagine pretty popular classes, entitled Life in the Universe, Into the Final Frontier, and Space Colonization. So Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me today, Stuart. So before we, we uh, delve into the main topic, which is life in the universe or intelligent life in the universe, tell us a little bit about your background and how you became interested in these kind of topics. The short of it was that sometime in my 20s, as, as young people do, they, they start asking big questions about the world. And uh, I decided that learning about physics and astronomy was something that would satisfy these big questions. And uh, so I, I got involved in, in an undergraduate degree, and then I uh, went to graduate school, not knowing exactly what I wanted to do astronomically in studies, but I always enjoyed the academic world. And as far as my interest in life in the universe goes, I was fortunate enough to have as a thesis advisor, uh, Dr. Frank Drake who some of our listeners may know is the um, inventor of the, the famous Drake equation, which tries to describe how many civilizations might be uh, out there in the galaxy at this point in time that we could communicate with. And so um, I got to be a teaching assistant for his class, Life in the Universe, back in the days when um, it was considered to be completely fringe science. So that really sparked my interest, being around all of those people that were involved with the, the institute called Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence SETI. That just kept my interest going. Now, as far as my professional studies of galaxies and things like that, that came about through a, a different avenue because uh, Dr. Drake had informed me, do not follow a career path to study life in the universe. It is not an established career path. You will be considered a crackpot. There's no future in it. And it, it turned out to be very bad advice. <laughs> <laughs> because just a short few years later, the first extrasolar planet was discovered, and then the whole thing took off in the mid-90s. And, and it certainly has captured the public imagination, both the science and the science fiction. And I was wondering if science fiction played a role too, because I know that some astronomers are just very inspired by science fiction and the, the just the possibilities of it all, and others say, "No, this is so unrealistic and so poorly done, and the science is all wrong." <laughs> you know, so I'm wondering which position you take on that. I would say that science fiction is something that I dwelled into in my 20s very much so and enjoyed very much, and I'm still a big fan of Star Trek and Star Wars and and these types of shows. I really enjoy it because it's, it portrays the human drama it just in a space setting. And I believe that there is actually a future like that is coming, assuming humanity remains successful. I also think that science fiction has influenced a great number of scientists. So um, though I myself was not moved dramatically by science fiction, it uh, is something I always enjoyed, and I appreciate its very important role in influencing some of the greatest minds in history. Okay, well, I'd say that you fall more strongly on the favoring science fiction than being disenamored of it. Yes, that's correct. I mean, 
there are so many very famous scientists who will say to you, I was influenced by Robert Heinlein, or I was influenced by Arthur C. Clarke very strongly, and that, that helped their vision. So what are the uh, opposing positions regarding, uh, regarding the likelihood of life in the universe, and what are the arguments they use? So this, this, this could take a little time, which is fine. I think that could be couched into two sort of statements. One is very famous over time. It's uh, known as the Fermi paradox. And the Fermi paradox was uh, proposed by Enrico Fermi. Think back. The physicist. The physicist, Enrico Fermi, famous for making the first controlled nuclear reaction uh, at the University of Chicago. He was friends with um, von Neumann, and von Neumann was a, a computer genius who had proposed that you could make replicable robots that could be programmed to replicate themselves and then colonize the galaxy. That the timescale for this to happen should be on the order of somewhere around 10 million to 20 million years, which cosmically is a blink of the eye. And so Fermi had posed the question, where are they or where is their stuff? You know, why are there not von Neumann machines roaming around the galaxy that we can detect or within our own solar system? The second uh, question or way that this question is posed is something called fact A. And fact A is a simple fact that says, it's an observation that Earth has not yet been colonized by alien civilizations. And then the question is, what can you learn by trying to understand the truth of that fact? Many people have done a lot of studies to examine this, and we definitely could launch into several aspects of that if you'd like to at this point in time i could discuss what did we learn by studying fact a who's learned that or i could talk about the fairy paradox and what some of those solutions are to the fermi paradox the reason the fermi paradox really requires answering or fact a really requires answering is is very simple uh, if you go back to the famous scientists such as Carl Sagan, Carl Sagan has very eloquently discussed how the probabilities of there being other life in our galaxy or other life in the universe um, have to be fairly favorable. And it comes down to the fact, for example, that in our own galaxy, there are some 200 billion stars. and we now know through a lot of hard work from NASA satellites and scientists working on this that there's probably a one habitable planet per star. Or I should definitely say that almost every star has a planetary system. We are now still trying to work out how many of those may be habitable. So maybe I shouldn't go so far, but Carl Sagan started with the idea that there was at least one habitable planet around every star. And from there, you do the numbers and you find out that, yeah, there should be hundreds, if not tens of thousands of other civilizations that have developed in our own galaxy. So how do you reconcile the fact that, that we haven't seen any of them? I think one of the major solutions to that is something called the Great Filter. And this was put together by um, uh, Nick Bostrom, who 
has said that basically there's a great filter and we haven't passed through it yet, which is to say intelligent civilizations do exist. It's that they never get to the point where they become space-faring technological civilizations for one reason or another, that there are so many emerging technologies that become uncontrollable by the species that it, it, the, the species ends up becoming mortalized, if you will. Go extinct. Go extinct, yeah. I don't think mortalized is a, is a word. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to find, find some succinct statement. Then there are other people then, um, for example, uh, David Kipping, um, who likes to say that the great filter actually happens well before uh, intelligence develops, that the process of abiogenesis itself. You might want to define that. Right, which would be the, um, the, the change of in, you know, inorganic matter and chemistry of inorganic matter making the transition to replicable organic matter. And that process of a chemical process in which um, organic molecules are actually able to reproduce themselves. Just that very simple transition in chemical reactions. That itself may be so rare that we basically are alone. And David Kipping is one of those professors who basically thinks the great filter is the abiogenesis step. Carl Sagan felt that, and many others feel that, when you look at the geological record of, of the Earth, that in the overall time span of 4.6 billion years, the evidence that abiogenesis occurred very early, within, say, several hundred million years at the very beginning of, of uh, the Earth, which is really a very short period of time, that the fact that that happened so rapidly on the earth was an indication that it must be easy, an easy pathway and therefore a common pathway. And therefore, if you have habitable planets, that abiogenesis is likely to occur. And David Kipping has gone through the argument showing that that is, that is a fallacy argument, that because you have one data point when you look at the probabilities mathematically, you really don't have any constraints. And so abiogenesis could be anywhere from common to completely almost zero. And if it is almost zero, or if it's a number much, much less than the number of stars in the galaxy, put it that way, then we are alone in the galaxy. So one thing that's really striking, I think, in this whole topic is the lack of a real solid information and the high number of assumptions that have to be made therefore i mean it's it's so speculative and but it's so compelling so you know so what that it's you know it's it's so much fun to think about but the actual facts are very arbitrary i mean we really just i mean except for the the part about the exoplanets we now know that there are that planets are common um how many of them have exactly the recognitions we don't know that yet but we, we're starting to get to know that too through some of that through your work, the spectroscopy and seeing which planets even have atmospheres and maybe have water. And, you know, so we're, we're getting that, those kinds of information. But so much else, we really don't know how, what the odds are. I mean, it could be the, the odds of having uh, life come out of inorganic matter could be infinitesimal, just so unlikely, but we don't know. We don't know. 
and yet people like Carl Sagan would say, oh, but it's so so compelling that, you know, there's the, the numbers are so big and, you know, the, the orders of magnitude are just so incredible that how can there not be? Well, I have to say, Stuart, I think we live in a fascinating time in which that set of statements you just made in 10 years, you might refine some of them a bit. For example, back in the 90s, uh, when I was a teaching assistant for Frank Drake and he was going through his Drake equation, you know, you, you start with the simple things like how many stars are there in, in the galaxy? And, and that was fairly well known. But even in the mid 90s, we didn't even know if the planetary system was rare. And so we right off the bat, it was speculation. But now with the Kepler satellite and I forget the name of the other satellite that has gone up recently, they are actually finding that literally 99% of all planets, uh, or sorry, stars have planets around them. So there, there's another known that we've had happen in say in the last 20 years. Now, the next thing to learn is like how many type of habitable planets are there? And there's a very simple definition for that. And that is that, is there liquid water on the surface of the planet? And that just comes from the fact that, first of all, we're gonna be within the confines of life as we know it. And life as we know it requires energy, it needs chemical elements, and it needs basically a fluid by which metabolism can happen. And if you find water, you basically have all three of those ingredients. So our next goal is, can we find planets that have water, surface water on them around other stars? And that is definitely going to be one of the key science projects of the James Webb Space Telescope, which is to be launched soon, I think at the end of this year. There's a very, very special experiment they can do when a planet passes in front of a star where some of the light just grazes through the atmosphere of the planet. And it's a very delicate experiment. You know, it's kind of like if, if you have a, a spider pass in front of a lighthouse uh, beam and that lighthouse is 10 you know, miles away and you can count the number of little hairs on the legs on the spider. That's, that's the kind of level of detail we're talking about. That little gossamer bit of light that passes through the atmosphere of the planet uh, will, will make some signatures in the light that you can then determine the chemical elements in that planetary atmosphere. Literally over the next few decades, we should start catalyzing hundreds of those, maybe thousands of them, which means we, we can find what we would call habitable planets, at least water-bearing planets, then you can go further than that. And there are certain chemical elements that are out of equilibrium from a normal atmosphere that are due to the fact that life exists on that planet, whether it's even bacterial life. And so they can look for those out of equilibrium chemical element signatures in these planets. And so we may even get to the point where we can discover whether there's at least simple life, not necessarily intelligent life, but simple life on these planets. So as you're saying, yes, there's so many unknowns, but people know what kind of experiment that they can do to go ask nature these questions. And it's a matter of just spending the money and carrying out the experiments and building a telescope like the whole, the James Webb Space Telescope, of course, has been taking decades. It's a such a delicate, instrument that it has to be done right and once you put it up there 
It has to be right, but it could unlock all of these questions. So pre preceding the the awe of uh, finding intelligent life, there's the awe of being impressed by her, the delicacy of her own instruments, the improvements. It's really awesome. Just, you know, what, what uh, humans have been able to do in that regard, really quite incredible. It's incredibly, incredibly impressive. And the, the more you pay attention to the cutting edge of human technology, the more it really instills with you a hope for me, at least, a hope that humanity is really going to evolve into something tremendous. Um, getting a little off topic, you know, you, you have quantum computing being started and you have this rekindling of understanding of the theory of quantum mechanics that involves something called quantum entanglement, uh, which is well beyond our topic today, but is something that if we begin to engineer this types of physics, we're talking about being able to communicate vast distances instantaneously through uh, entanglement of particles. You know, and I've even learned, if we want to talk about life, that quantum entanglement, which I'm sorry, I can't define it. It's, it's too uh, detailed for our discussion. But it turns out that birds' brains actually use this phenomenon of quantum entanglement entanglement in order to understand their migration patterns is something we've just finally learned and it's the first life form that we understand that's actually evolved to exploit these quantum processes uh, apparently humans and many other mammals do not uh, exploit these quantum processes at this level we through brute force of our scientific method are are uncovering them and learning how to how to engineer them and just one one last comment about quantum entanglement. I've read that if you understand it, you don't understand it. I mean, it's that counterintuitive. I absolutely agree with you. Einstein called it spooky action at a distance. Correct, correct. And it's like whack-a-mole. Every time that you think that you begin to understand it and you push on that little area of your understanding, it moves away from you intellectually and you have to try to, try to re-understand it. There, I think there are very few people on the planet that, that really do understand it. So I have a, a somewhat esoteric question uh, about the orders of magnitude of uh, the possibility of life uh, elsewhere in the universe. Uh, wouldn't it be true that the star of that uh, extraterrestrial life form would have to be a at least a second generation star in order to have all of the elements required for life? Because a first generation star with, with, with just hydrogen wouldn't have any of the heavier elements. So that, that uh, that's at least, I would think, would somewhat limit the number of stars. I mean, still be a vast number. Right, so that, that's a great observation. Um, we call these stars that you're speaking of, we call them population three stars. They are believed to have formed very early in the universe and only out of the hydrogen gas. And of course, that means that the planetary system or whatever that would form around them uh, would not necessarily be able to cool down and form planetoids and things like that. You don't have the chemical elements for life. Some of these stars that, that are really huge, the huge ones that form like that, then they, in their cores, create the chemical elements for life uh, through nuclear fusion processes. They tend to die by exploding, which means they then are able to expel those metals. We call them metals, anything that's not hydrogen or helium, but 
carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, the elements of life, back out, and then new stars form incorporating them. So it's exactly the story you're saying. And it is definitely, if you want to form a new life form or, or have abiogenesis, then you definitely are going to need to have a second generation or a third generation stellar system or solar system. However, uh, there are a lot of studies that talk about the migration of civilizations, which is not completely out of the question and still could be happening in parts of the galaxy that we, we just cannot detect those motions. And it is possible, for example, that they could find them a home around a type three or hydrogen only star. I think that, that that's sort of a science fiction type of thing, but it could happen in principle. The, the next question I want to ask is about life in the universe much closer to home. I don't mean the Earth, but other planets in our own solar system. Uh, I read uh, maybe a year or two ago about detection of possible signatures of microbes in the, the atmosphere of Venus called phosphines. And so that one of the upcoming exploratory trips to Venus will involve, I guess, scooping up some of the of the upper atmosphere of Venus, which is apparently a very comfortable temperature, unlike the temperature on the surface. Yeah, that's correct. Um, I actually wrote a, a small newspaper article for our local newspaper about the phosphine in Venus and um, was fascinated to learn that um, Sarah Seeger uh, and her group from MIT had proposed a sort of life cycle for these small microbes that might exist uh, in the atmosphere, that upper atmosphere of, of Venus that might produce the phosphine. And it was a fascinating life cycle that they, they had proposed, one in which the, the life would hook onto water droplets. And then as the water droplets sank, uh, they would find themselves in the hotter environment where the water droplets evaporated. They would have to go into a dormant stage then, and then they would uh, hook onto the lighter molecules, which then would float back up. And then they would, again, hydrate pretty much the same way as those little water bear creatures do, that, that they, can, they can completely shut down and live for decades in the vacuum of space. Um, I think they're even on the moon, having been put there by some of our spacecraft by accident. They can live for decades uh, in these dormant stages. And so the idea was that these little microbes would rise back up, get into the hydrated area, they would go through their life cycle again, and then as they sunk back down, they go back into hibernation. And this was a fairly fantastic idea, but not beyond the realm of possibility as a, as a life cycle. And, and the fascinating aspect of this is that uh, these would be what would be called extremophiles. And I think the current the current thinking about ex extremophiles on earth is that they didn't necessarily s start out they weren't necessarily the first life forms but they may have evolved from other also simple life forms in in more hospitable conditions and then evolved to be able to uh, withstand extreme conditions so if that's true then that would suggest that the extremophiles if they exist on venus would have evolved from some other life forms on the surface or closer to the surface there is a possibility of that, um, Stuart, because there's definitely evidence that at one point in time there was that Venus was very much like a sister planet to the Earth, that it was 
You know, if you take the amount of water that people have estimated was on Venus at one point in time, you know, it would cover the entire planet several meters thick. And uh, there's very strong evidence that there was that much water on Venus at one point in time and that it may have had a fairly temperate atmosphere. And so then you're back to your question of abiogenesis, whether that took place uh, during that period of time. Mars is very similar. It, it had a period of a lot of water, uh, a temperate atmosphere, and then that planet um, evolved away from that. Whereas Venus went into what we call a greenhouse runaway effect or runaway greenhouse effect, Mars went into something that we call an ice catastrophe. They, they went both the opposite direction. Well, here's a question that maybe is somewhat outside your purview, but um... The, the idea of abiogenesis or life coming out of an inorganic matter was experimented with 70 years ago, almost 70 years ago, in 1952, Stanley Miller and Harold Urey did the famous beaker experiment where they put in Correct. inorganic material and into a beaker and they heated it up and they added the uh, simulated lightning and lo and behold, right. amino acids popped out <laughs> or not popped out, stayed in the beaker. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it didn't evolve into actual creatures or anything, actual cells or anything like that, but still it was suggestive. And has anything happened since then? I mean, it's so long ago. I mean, 70 years ago, it's it was taken at the time as evidence. Oh, you see, evolution really can start from inorganic matter. So they had some very um, interesting ideas on the chemical composition of what the early atmosphere was like. And they assumed that the life was probably, or the, the concentrated molecules that they had in their second beaker were probably like tide pools, and that they used uh, UV discharge to mimic lightning as the energy source. And so it turns out that our, our whole thought process on how life may have evolved has kind of migrated away from the tide pool lightning energy and has migrated more toward this. Um, thermal vents that are deep down in the sea so that you have these rich chemical elements coming out of these things that we, we know as black smokers uh, that were several hundred degrees. And there was no light there. So any metabolism would have not had anything to do with uh, photosynthesis. It would have started out using chemical energies of things like sulfuric acid uh, of all things. And no need for oxygen yet either, right? No need for oxygen. In fact, in fact, uh, life was anaerobic all the way up until about 2 billion years ago or so, um, when cyanobacteria learned how to incorporate mitochondria, which were able to process oxygen. Uh, so you had a prokaryotic cell, mitochondria, become now a symbiotic part of uh, another cell uh, and then you, you get what's called the eukaryotic cells. And then the cyanobacteria were then able to release a great deal of oxygen into the atmosphere. And in that, that transformed the chemical composition of the atmosphere some 10, 2 billion years ago to a primarily nitrogen and oxygen atmosphere. So life is responsible for that. Yeah, I think about these things when I think about global warming. Uh, I don't think most people do, but but you know the fact that uh, that life in, in the large scale of things actually affects the atmosphere. I mean, that's happened before. We wouldn't be here if that didn't happen. And by right. releasing the energy from all these fossil fuels and, and chemically changing and putting the carbon back into the atmosphere, we're, we're taking 
millions and millions of years of, of the, res, re, the residue of millions of years of creatures and putting it back into the atmosphere. That's correct. It's just, it's just crazy. I actually just wanted to ask you about other possibilities for life in, in the solar system. And I, I, I've read that there are two possibilities in, in the moons of Jupiter and Saturn, Europa and uh, around Jupiter and, and Cetalus. So I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about that. I, I think at Cetalus, there are plumes of, of water shooting into the atmosphere every so often. So we might be able to, to send a spacecraft through the plume and collect that way. In fact, we have already sent a spacecraft through the plume. I think the Cassini spacecraft uh, was redirected. Right, but we didn't have the right instruments yet. Yes, we, don't, we didn't have the exact right instruments that we wanted on Cassini, but we were able to measure some of the chemical composition. It is definitely water, ice. And those plumes come out of the south pole of Enceladus. And it's interesting, most of the time when you see moons uh, around either Jupiter or Saturn, have uh, internal heat, that internal heat is driven by uh, tidal forces from the main planet because, you know, Jupiter is so huge and, and Saturn is so huge that the planet like Europa is actually being a little bit tug of war pushed and pulled as it goes around its orbit and that keeps it internally heated, which allows it to have its underground ocean. But Enceladus is, has physics that I, I can't say I completely understand in which there's something about the release of the water ice in the South Pole that actually is also generating a lot of the energy. And so it's a self-feedback system. It certainly has enough of the chemical elements and the energy budget that simple life forms could persist in that type of environment. Certainly I would say that if we put life forms into that environment, that they would thrive. And I always find that to be a fascinating way to look at the question. Could there be life there? Well, if it hasn't generated automatically or, or naturally, the question is, would it survive there if we were to put some extreme files there, for example? And I think the answer is yes. And I think that's also the case with Europa, which has this global underwater uh, ocean, or I should say underground ocean. So global meaning almost like an ocean layer in a sense? Yes, that we think it completely surrounds the entire 360 degree uh, sur surface of the planet. In fact, if you took all the water off of Europa and made it into a big space ball, and you took all the water off the Earth and turned it into a big space ball and put those two balls of water next to each other, Europa wins that. There's more liquid water on Europa than there is on Earth. Wow. So if life were discovered, even simple life on one of these moons, or let's say underground in Mars or, or in the atmosphere of Venus, I, I would think that would be a tremendous morale boost for anyone searching for life outside the solar system. Just to, It would just show that, hey, this is not so, so hard to do. I think it's a complete and total game changer. I mean, humanity has been asking this question for centuries, if not, you know, millennia, I should say. Is there something about us that, or this planet that is completely unique? As, as science has matured, we've had to dethrone ourselves from being something special, from thinking the universe was built on our behalf, to realizing that it's basically as this infinite space with, you know, a, literally an infinite, almost an infinite number, at least for our minds to conceive of, 
locations for life to exist, okay? So if we just look in our own solar system, if we were to find, as you say, life in our own solar system, even simple microbial life, that would really lend us to think that, hey, this has got to be fairly common. If our solar system is not special, this has got to be common throughout the galaxy and then throughout the universe. It, it's a complete game changer from are we alone to, hey, we're probably not alone. I really almost can't speak to how that would affect the social consciousness of humanity. All my life, I have been a very optimistic person about that. This would have a unifying effect. I don't know if I really want to go down this road, but I think since COVID came, I, I thought that the optimism that I had about humanity, I thought that something that challenged humanity to this degree would unify us. And it has had the exact opposite effect. And it has taught me that the human nature is much different than my ideal version of human nature. So if we found life, even in the solar system or intelligent life otherwise out there in the galaxy, I really think there would be a lot of tension on the planet. There would be a lot of people who think that this is a wonderful thing and they want to study it scientifically and we're part of some bigger scheme and they see this belonging and this, you know, and then there, there would be some other people that are, that are threatened by it. Not only that, would would think that there, this, this must be a lie as well and uh, would not believe it. We're going to get more deeply into the topic uh, in a moment. Uh, but before we do, I just wanted to revisit the question of, you know, why aren't we discovering um, aliens, you know, left and right and center? <laughs> One of the possibilities that I thought of is that, well, what if this idea of, of, of progress is a projection and, and not even an accurate one, you know, of people like, like you and I who are, who are more optimistic about people and uh, would see the discovery of extraterrestrial life as, as being inspiring and unifying. But actually, because of the way evolution works with this kind of interplay between competition and cooperation, that maybe it's not realistic to think that uh, a species would evolve to be peaceful and able to work together like in Star Trek. <laughs> and may maybe it's more accurate a more accurate prediction is that there'll be booms and busts, you know, that just as there have been with civilizations so far, that you know, we'll make some progress and we'll just fall way back, you know, that we'll maybe not fully destroy ourselves, but civilization will collapse and then sprout again and collapse and sprout again. And that may be one of the limiting factors. Well, civilization sprouting and collapsing again is definitely in the historical record over and over and over. And I think the difference now is that civilization has become global. The collapses could be global too, as we're seeing. The, the collapse could be global. That's correct, which which takes it to a whole nother level. And I think this is why there are some people who really feel that there is a, um, a strong argument and an imperative for some humans to actually get off the planet so that, that you could have co-evolution in this regard, which I think I've gone far afield of your question again. Well, that's, that's okay. <laughs> Can you repeat exactly what where you're heading with that again for me? Well, well, you know, just I was just re re revisiting the earlier question about uh, you know the Fermi paradox. I mean, wh why aren't we finding more evidence? Although it sounds like maybe we will. Just it's just taking longer than expected. 
Yeah, I mean, there there's um, several layers to that question. I mean, one is that we have so much of the solar system itself to explore. You know, there could be life under in, in caves in Mars. There could be life under the oceans in Europa. There could be some in Enceladus, for example. There could be some in the atmosphere of Venus. We we really are just beginning that, and 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 finding microbial life like that is is very difficult and challenging but we're up to it if we don't collapse as a civilization the other layer is sort of the fermi paradox layer you know why why haven't they visited us okay and that that comes back to large speculative questions like the great filter etc but then you have, you have you have some innovative uh solutions to this as well um maybe you've heard of nikolai kardashev who sort of classified civilizations as level, you know, one, which means you have control over all the energy of your planet. Level two, you have control over all the energy in your solar system. And three, you have galactic civilization control of the energy in your galaxy. Well, clearly, we don't see the signs of a level three Kardashev civilization. What we might be able to find are signs of level two if people, races, take on what we would call astro engineering projects. For example, one of the ways to harness all of the energy of a star is to build huge collectors throughout your solar system called Dyson swarms or Dyson spheres after Freeman Dyson. If there were Dyson swarms orbiting other stars, astronomers would note them very quickly. It's very pathological signature of light patterns coming from the star. And so far, we haven't seen any of these astroengineering projects on this level. Some cr cr critics of that uh, idea propose that, well, maybe as civilizations uh, get more sophisticated, they become more energy efficient, and they actually don't need to keep increasing the amount of energy. Yeah, that could be very true, right? I mean, you could learn how to use quantum processes that, that we haven't unlocked yet that could release energy. Uh, say from the vacuum, what's called the vacuum energy, you know, so there's, and people are working on that. So there, there's, there's cutting edge ideas like that. That leads to the next question, which is, is it such a good idea to not just search for life, but actually broadcast that we're here? And this is a very big controversy. There was a, a wonderful debate recently between Douglas Vakach and Michio Kaku, uh, you can get this on YouTube uh, about this very question where Kaku was very much against announcing ourselves. And I guess he's seen more of the science fiction movies where the aliens invade and take over and maybe eat us up. <laughs> uh, whereas uh, whereas uh, Vakach, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right, who was the president and founder of MEDI, it stands for the Messaging Extraterrestrial Intelligence, uh, the nonprofit research organization. He is gung ho, I think. <laughs> to broadcast uh, that we're here and uh, I guess is much more optimistic about what that would entail if we actually succeeded. Well, those, those, that is a very deep question. And I can see why such great minds are actually debating it, honestly. As far as I know, we've only sent out one broadcast, which was uh, a, like a high gain beam uh, that was basically saying we are here. Um, it was done by Frank Drake back in 1974. Other than that, I'm not aware of any other, you know, highly concentrated beamings of information that says 
we are here and here's the nature of our planetary system and et cetera like that. Right. And, and of course, we sent out the, the Pioneer spacecraft, you know, with the uh, photos of to a naked man, a naked woman, and and the record with the Beatles on it, and and, and uh, Bach and Beethoven, I think. Uh, but you know, as you're saying, that pretty soon we may, through spectral telescopy, if that's the word, uh, actually identify which planets are most likely to inhabit life, and we could actually beam our signal directly to the high probability planets. And that's very different than a broad broadcast, you know, a, a literal broadcast where it's just beaming it everywhere, right? but weekly. Well, here, here's the thing, Stuart. That is on a, on a level um, in which you are make if you if you're just a few scientists and you want to do this, and, and you know you are making a decision uh, for all of humanity, which is really outside of, of your jurisdiction as a scientist, in my opinion. <laughs> this is something that I, I really believe that if we want to do this as a species, that we do have to have some type of governing body that would regulate this uh, it may even require some type of popular referendum or at least representatives of all nations you know making a vote in say the united nations it, it, it needs to be done at that level in my opinion before you just start you know broadcasting our existence i, I do believe that the, the planet itself a majority or at least the representatives the majority of representatives would have to be uh, on board with this, and it would have to have some regulatory controls over it. I mean, a simple majority or a super majority <laughs> of uh, countries. I was about to say planets. <laughs> right, the Planetary Federation. Well, again, that's that's sort of beyond my my uh, jurisdiction as an astronomer to to think. I don't know what the right balance for that equation would be, but I certainly would argue that it is not a decision that should be made by scientists themselves. Now, if they pick up a signal, then I think that definitely should be, and, and the protocols, the international protocols are that that signal will then be made public once verified by other scientists, similar to the movie Contact, where it basically would be made public. But the other way around, I, I, think, I think that is a very sticky question. And only because we're semi-suspicious. Here's the thing, Stuart. To be afraid of broadcasting our existence, we would have to believe that the other civilization uh, has the ability to physically come here or at least have some kind of weird death ray where they could demolish our planet from across the galaxy, okay, which sounds a little bit kind of nuts. Right now, we don't know of any... Uh, there's no signatures of any aliens zooming around the galaxy and there's no physics that we have engineered yet that would allow us to do that. I do want to say that there are scientific papers that have been written about warp drive. There's a gentleman by the name of Miguel Alcubierre who wrote a paper in the mid nineties and then people have taken that further a gentleman by the name of White and another gentleman by the name of Froning, and they have used a lot of this quantum entanglement uh, physics to be able to develop faster than light travel across the galaxy. And so this idea that there's this uh, speed limit of the speed of light, these machines do not violate Einstein's theory that says nothing can physically go faster than the speed of light. But what these do is they 
they actually modified the space and time around the ship and the space and the time can translate faster than the speed of light. If other beings have unlocked that type of physics, then they could travel between the stars. But like we've been saying, we see no signatures of anything like that yet out there in the galaxy. So another possibility of why we haven't seen intelligent life is that maybe Michio Kaku is right, that uh, it's too dangerous to make contact. And maybe when civilizations get past a certain level of development, they realize it's better to stay isolated. <laughs> you know, it can't take the chance. I, I think that's an interesting argument, but I, I'm more in favor of Arthur C. Clarke's argument, which is to say that advanced technology would be magic to us. And we may not even recognize it as technology. I mean, you have to imagine the things that we're doing today with our iPhones and our cell phones and the computers that we have. If you were to take that back, say, 100 years from now, you know, your iWatch being able to communicate and speak over it to somebody on the other side of the planet it would be pure magic just, you know, to these people from 100 years ago. I fantasize about bringing Da Vinci here. <laughs> Someone who was a very inventive person back then. I agree. I agree. And I would like to add Tesla to that too, because Tesla actually envisioned this world that we're existing in now. And I think it would be great if he could just have five minutes to see that it all came true. Only five minutes. <laughs> well, at least five minutes. I don't know how much time you can borrow from death. <laughs> You know, from a psychological point of view, it's fascinating to see how people project their feelings about their own lives and, and their own observations of life on Earth and projecting into the future. I mean, you have people, I mean, Michio Kaku, I imagine, must have been really affected by the, the bad aspects of humanity and projecting that onto the whole universe and uh, Vakach, uh, the opposite. Because it, it, it's not it's it's not science. It's it's values and expectations and psychology. I mean, it's all mixed in, in one. Uh, you really can't come up with a scientific decision about whether to broadcast that we're here or not. I mean, it's it's really based on a kind of hope, hope or or dread, one or the other. I agree with you a hundred percent, and I find that to be a very fascinating aspect about science. Is that in in the end, it is truly a purely human endeavor and one that is creative in the same sense that writing a poem is creative or writing a song is creative and you cannot separate the human element the the the, the filter through which that mind sees the world you can't separate that from the process of science so you have these great minds that think of these things but then they, they are operating through a filter and sometimes these filters are very different you know, interesting, um, Michio has had all kinds of futuristic ideas, which are quite fantastic, where, you know, we could travel around the galaxy on a light beam uh, and experience the entire galaxy just by beaming uh, electronically that, that our consciousness will be completely digitized Oof. in the future. And yeah, he's got some really... Wow, that's, that's out there. Futuristic ideas. Yeah, he's got... Yeah, he, he wrote... I think he wrote a book called something about what the future could look like. I can't remember the title now. And uh, some of the later chapters, he really gets into this idea, once we understand how to do quantum entanglement and quantum computing, that we could digitize our own consciousness.
and become immortal. And our consciousness will become immortal. Yeah, somehow I don't think this is going to happen next year. No, no. This, <laughs> this is far-reaching science fiction. But that's why one likes to read science fiction, because it gives ideas to people that then they try to one step at a time. You know, I can't go from A to Z, but I could do maybe I can work on step A. So do you think these kind of speculations and research are in the end humanizing for us? I mean, does it help us to feel, not just feel, but to become better people and to treat each other better? Because it seems like that's that's one sphere in which we're really not so great. <laughs> you know, even after all these advances, it seems like these advances often go into weapons of war rather than than peace, or, or I guess suppose both. It just seems like the, the moral development of the species is lagging painfully behind the technological. I agree 100% with that statement, lagging painfully behind the technology. It's a beautiful thing for those who want to embrace hope, to go back and listen to some of the things that Carl Sagan said so eloquently. You know, you can go on YouTube and you can find a uh, 45-minute little talks that he gave at universities and he just will fill you with hope and just the the sensation that you know humanity really has this potential for greatness if it decides to embrace it it has an amazing potential for greatness and for some reason we have not really unified uh in our greatness now there are some people and I tend to sort of lean in this direction. I used to lean much further in that direction. Now I'm, I've kind of come a little bit closer back to sitting on the fence. I don't know if you've heard of a gentleman by the name of Frank White. And he started something called the Overview Institute. And he wrote a book called The Overview Effect. And there's a beautiful little Overview Effect uh, YouTube video. It's like 19 minutes that will bring you in and suck you in and just bring you to that height of wanting humanity to unify. And what would be a key thing that could happen to precipitate that? And in his mind, it is get people off the planet, have them look back at the earth in its natural habitat in space and understanding there are no borders, that we're all on this small, little, fragile, beautiful planet all alone echoing a lot of what Carl Sagan said. And he's done a lot of studies with the astronauts who have gone to the moon and interviewed many who have gone even to the space station. And they are profoundly affected deeply. It's what they call a cognitive shift. And this cognitive shift was given the name, the overview effect, in which they see humanity and all life forms and the Gaia of Earth. In this sense, I'm sort of a fan of what Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson are doing because the more people that get that experience and can bring it back home, we may be able to slowly make this transition. An adoption of the overview effect might be that phenomenon which uh, could unify humanity. So if what you're saying really worked, we would be sending the warlords of Afghanistan and the uh, cartel leaders of Latin America and uh, bringing them all up there. Uh, it might be dangerous to bring them up more than one at a time uh, from the same area. <laughs> <laughs> I 100% agree with you. This is my absolute, my fantasy about humanity is I'm, 
I don't think you can put them all in the same spaceship because I think there's just, there's too much distrust. You know, every, every leader is going uh, of a different country is going to need to have uh, the spaceship vetted for, you know, sabotage, or it could be a grand scheme to annihilate all these people at once, you know, all that paranoia. But if you could take them one by one and get them into what we call cis lunar space, far enough away from the earth, they can see the earth by itself. Let them sit out there for a week <laughs> and then come home and then have a G20 summit. <laughs> and you could add to that that they're not allowed to come back until they change their minds about their... Uh... <laughs> yeah, well, according to, according to Frank White, many of the astronauts, it, it, it just, it happens. You know, there are, there are probably some individuals that happens to more strongly than others, but it, it, it's profound, apparently. Well, and, and, you know, of course, you know, that's, it's a very select group that are going up. It reminds me a little bit about uh, near-death experiences. I mean, I've had some people I've talked to about it, you know, when they had that experience, it changed their lives. They realized that, you know, there's another life or whatever. And I've known other people says, you know, I had that experience, but, you know, it's just my brain doing things because it was about to die, but it didn't. So, no, I, I didn't take it uh, literally. <laughs> so it really depends what your mindset is to begin with. I agree 100%. It could be that, 50% of the people are not affected. And, and honestly, I'll tell you, you mentioned at the beginning of the broadcast that I teach a class called Into the Final Frontier. And that is basically about humanity going out into space, the sort of the next ocean. But to give the, the next 500 years context, I spend the first half of the class talking about the last 500 years, starting with the sea race talking about the Chinese explorations, the Portuguese explorations, the Sp Spanish, and then how the Dutch uh, took over the entire world uh, with their Dutch East India Company and exploited the world for commercial gain through shipping and trade routes. And if you think about what's going to happen in space, you know, forget the overview effect. People are going to go up there. They're going to mine asteroids. They're going to control certain astronomical bodies as the Portuguese controlled certain ports. And uh, it's going to be humanity 2.0, but or I should say the sea race followed by imperialism 2.0 in the solar system. So I don't know which is going to happen. I think that the overview effect would be a beautiful thing. But like you said, there are some people that that mentality is just not there and they're just going to that the march of humanity as it is, is just going to move into a new territory of opportunity. Well, I've, I've read that Gene Roddenberry, when he was conceiving Star Trek, modeled it over the Western dramas like Bonanza, that just set it in space. So, you know, you have the little uh, cowboys and Indians, or, or with or without the Indians, where you have a, a thread and a, a shootout at the end, and you survive just by the skin of your teeth. And there's always a countdown, the ship's about to explode, and the last second it's saved, you know. So that is classic 60s TV. <laughs> it is. So how about with the, uh, we're just about out of time now, but I was wondering if you could maybe relate a story from your classes about a student that you uh, feel that you've touched in, in some way and inspired to become interested in these topics. That's a great question. And, and in the end, that's really why I think professors enjoy working with young people so much. And and teaching these things. Every, at the end of every semester, I do get probably about 10 or 20 emails saying, you know, you've opened my eyes, you've opened my eyes to a world that I hadn't seen before. I didn't know anything about space and things like that. 
I've actually had people say that they've decided to make career changes and go into something that's space related. And um, I find that to be very, very rewarding. It's hard, to, it's hard to come up with one specific example, though I do know, for example, a, a young gentleman who uh, was a plant scientist and doing horticulture as an, a study. And then he realized after studying some of old uh, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky's work from 1926, where he proposed greenhouses and spaces and stuff like that, that he said, you know, and then he looked at modern technology and all the things that he'd learned in his major, and he decided, that's what I want to do. I want, I want to go and help develop and do these things. And so you see people who have a passion about A, they find out that they can fit it into a passion with B and, and, and meld the two together. And, and that's extremely rewarding. As a professor, if you, if you affect one student out of 80 every semester, you know, you feel like you've succeeded with your job. Well, that, that's probably more common than the number of uh, the percentage of intelligent life forms per, uh, per solar system. That's right. Anyway, Chris uh, Churchill, it's been a delight to have you on the show. Chris Churchill, the professor of astronomy at NMSU, who uh, is studying the evolution of galaxies and is really interested in questions about life in the universe and the final frontier and space, space colonization. So thank you so much for coming out to Delving In. Stuart, thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation today and the opportunity to share these ideas with your listeners. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.